So the question that I pose myself is, first of all, why does he save basically any discussion of Christianity for the very end of the book? And um, that's a really noticeable thing about it, you know, that he does his best to keep Christianity off stage, to kind of tell the story of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire until quite late, until Constantine, really, as if Christianity had nothing to do with it. Um, and I think that's a very important thing that we need to understand. Dear listener, and welcome to another instalment of New Work in Intellectual History. We are produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at St. Andrews, and I am your host for this episode, Robin Mills, and we are talking about Edward Gibbon with Dr. Hugh Liebert. Hello, Hugh. How are you doing? Hi, Robin. Uh, Very good to be here. Thanks. Now, Dr. Liebert is an Associate Professor of American Politics in the Department of Social Sciences at the University States Military Academy in West Point, New York. He is the author or editor of seven books, including perhaps most relevantly for listeners of this podcast, Plutarch's Politics Between City and Empire, which was published with Cambridge University Press in 2016. But this year, or March this year, saw the publication of Dr. Liebert's Gibbons Christianity, Religion, Reason and the Fall of Rome, published by Penn State University Press. Uh, I should also mention that uh, Hugh received his MA and PhD from the University of Chicago, the Committee of Social Thought there. But it is Gibbon and religion that we're going to discuss today. Now, Professors at West Point are not usually the people we have on uh, on here. And looking over your publications the past decade or so, there's a lot of stuff about military strategy and foreign policy and leadership and things. But this book is about Gibbon and uh, and religion. So how do you end up being interested in an 18th century Hampshire militia captain? Um, huh. Yeah. How did, how did Gibbon arrive on your desk? Thanks, Robin. Thanks again for the invitation. I'm really glad to be here. Um, yeah, it wasn't through his service in the Hampshire militia, actually. <laughs> I got interested in Gibbon. That's probably the first thing to say. Um, no, it was actually because of my work on Plutarch, which I think is probably not the way that most people get into Gibbon, but it's the path that I took. Um, you know, so Plutarch, as you know, wrote this wonderful book, The Parallel Lives, where he pairs uh, biographies of Greek and Roman statesmen, you know, um, compares them to one another, makes a number of astute observations about their motivations, their successes and failures, and so on. Um, and I, I read Plutarch as a kind of a political philosopher in a way, someone who had to teach us something about the, the city and how to think about different levels of uh, political allegiance. You know, how is it that you could care about the politics of your small city, but still care about Greece and be a you know participant in the Roman Empire and all of that sort of thing. So that was the argument of my book. And that led me into Gibbon through a few different paths, actually. Um, one was I got quite interested in Plutarch's reception uh, by modern authors. So uh, Shakespeare and Montaigne, for instance, were great readers of Plutarch. Uh, but so were, you know, Rousseau, um, Alexander Hamilton. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't make the musical. I should have been. But, uh, but uh, uh, you know, he was a great reader of Plutarch. But I got really interested in what Plutarch meant in the 18th century and, and more broadly what these classical authors meant in the 18th century. And that, you know, led me into the neighborhood of the giant of 18th century classicism, Edward Gibbon. Um, I also got interested in Gibbon because he begins, you know, this vast story he tells in the decline and fall uh, with Plutarch's emperors. Uh, you know, Plutarch uh, lived from about 45 to 120 of our era. Um, he did most of his writing towards the end of his life under the emperors uh, Gibbon calls the Antonines. Um, and, and so I, you know, got into Gibbon a little bit to kind of set the stage that Plutarch was living on. Um, but really, the, the the probably the most fundamental thing that got me interested in Gibbon was you know, I was thinking about this question of what these classical authors meant in our own day and age, uh, you know, in the, in the modern period. Um, and Gibbon's 
you know, magnificent work connects those two periods, really. Like he, he tells us the story of how we get from the Antonines into the, you know, the 15th, 16th century. Um, and I thought he'd be the, the thinker, you know, to teach me something about how the ancient relates to the modern, what the ancient means in the modern context, uh, particularly because he took notice of something that Plutarch doesn't mention at all, which is the rise of Christianity. Uh, so that's how I got into Gibbon. That leads us neatly on to, I suppose, introducing the book. Now, the overarching theme, I take it, of Gibbon's Christianity is that Gibbon is an astute psychologist of religion in general and a serious analyst of Christianity in particular, but we rarely think of him in those terms. Could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, Gibbon as the sneering critic? Gibbon, yeah. you know, the ironical Gibbon who is, uh, you know, mocking uh, Christianity, I suppose. Yeah, set that up for us. And then perhaps then that can feed into what you think we're missing, what we're losing by having that view of Gibbon as a, an ironic sort of sneering critic of Christianity. Sure. So uh, I guess the first thing to say is that reputation is partly uh, deserved <laughs> that Gibbon has. You know, he's, he's kind of known as the infidel historian. He writes these, uh, you know, uh, skeptical uh, accounts of the rise and spread of Christianity that attribute it exclusively to secular causes, not to providence or anything like that. Um, so it's partly deserved. But I, I think the that it's also partly undeserved. And I'm kind of exploring the terrain that opens up when you see him as a, as a more interesting thinker, I guess, about religion and Christianity in particular. Um, I, the, I think when I first got into Gibbon, um, the, the reputation of him being kind of sneering skeptic was the thing that dominated my own reading of him. Um, and, you know, often the ideas we have in mind kind of color what we discover. And that was very much my experience of, of this book, The Decline of Fall until I started thinking seriously about this very famous sentence that he wrote um, in his memoirs, uh, which he wrote towards the end of his life. Um, and it's probably the most famous sentence he ever wrote, you know, about how he, how he came up with the idea of writing the decline and fall, which uh, maybe I, I can just put it on the table really quick and just, just read it. Um, he says, it was at Rome on the 15th of October, 1764, as I sat musing amidst the ruins of the capital, while the barefooted friars were singing vespers in the temple of Jupiter that the idea of writing the decline and fall of the city first started to my mind. Um, so that's a, a beautiful sentence, right? Um, I, I guess what I noticed about that though, as I was thinking about it, is that Gibbon had written a story that was similar in structure to the stories that Christians often tell about themselves, about their faith, where you know they're living one way and then a sudden transformation happens and they start living another way. You know, this was a kind of conversion story. Um, and that, that was very interesting to me because it was a different sort of conversion story than Christians, you know, are prominent, right, in, in Christian kind of autobiographies. Um, it certainly wasn't a story about God doing anything, right, or Jupiter doing anything. But it was a story that was, uh, you know, concerned with religion, right? It, it was the it was the the seeing these these um you know the friars where the the temple of Jupiter used to be like that that was the transformation that religious transformation that really provoked um, Gibbon, and he then at the late, at the end of his life could tell the story in, again in these tones of a conversion story, which was really interesting to me. So I saw I noticed in this in this account that he was actually taking a kind of you know Christian narrative structure, making it his own. Um, and in a certain sense, I guess you could say secularizing it, but not denying the phenomenon of conversion, right? Not, not trying to dismiss it, not sneering, making fun at it, but really trying to make sense of it in his own life um, in an interesting way to me. And so once I saw that he was doing that in the memoirs, it kind of opened a new window onto what he was doing in his work as a whole. Interesting. He labors over that 
how he describes that day, right? Yeah. Could you say a little bit about, about that? And there are sure. various drafts of the autobiography. That's right. And he, uh, yeah, he had very different ways of explaining what's going on on that. Correct. On that, on that day. Can yeah, you tell us really a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. No, he has six, well, six drafts of the, the autobiographies that he writes towards the end of his life and never seems to settle on one that, that he thinks is good. You know, he never finishes it. Um, and this particular scene, he has three different ways of telling it. Um, you know, one where where it's, uh, you know, it, it, the, the friars seem like they, they're kind of are interrupting a classical scene, you know, yeah. another, uh, it's, it's weighted a different way. And then he settles on this way of telling it, the one I've just read. Uh, so this is from the, the latest um, draft that deals with this scene, where, you know, the, the, it, it's to my mind, it really kind of raises this question of, of like, what is going on? How did this happen? You know, what, what was uh, responsible for this, this uh, profound transformation that you can see, you know, you can see in front of you. You, um as given did okay um so that's so the um autobiographical autobiographical conversion narrative uh is one of the contexts you sort of introduce at the beginning of the book you also talk about uh the grand tour correct and given someone on, on the grand tour and how his experiences of that i what influences later historical practice but also indicate he is an empathetic historian of religion he is he has uh, more insight is more willing to try and get inside the minds of uh christian uh believers that he is observing could you say a little bit about that and then the other um sort of context uh, context you introduce towards the beginning in the beginning of the book sorry is his upbringing maybe we'll stick it we'll stick with his family for the moment because then we can go into his sort of personal relationship with religion which is kind of fascinating yeah. but yes uh, could you say a little bit more about the other context that you place given into to get this sense of him being a more astute thinker about religion than perhaps we've considered before yeah that's right so i i start in the first chapter of the book by kind of laying out the um you know the history in the 17th and 18th century of two uh, genres literary genres that you could see this account, you know, of um, the genesis of the kind of fall, kind of uh, participating in one way or another. Uh, one being travel writing, uh, the other being religious autobiography. Uh, so, the, so I go into a bit the history of travel writing, which is, you know, just a completely fascinating story. It's one that I wasn't very familiar with before doing the research for this work, but I, it was a very, you know, fun discovery to make. Um, of just you know how the idea of the grand tour gets going and what it means in the 17th and 18th century. Um, so you know I, I start by looking at this thinker uh, Richard Lassels, uh, who, who's responsible, most responsible for introducing the term grand tour, as a Catholic priest. You know who's, who's writing to to um, English uh, you know elites about why travel is good for them, why it should play a role in their education. Um, but you know the grand tour's culmination was visiting Rome. And for Protestant England, going to Rome is, you know, it's a, it's a religiously fraught thing to do, right? So yes. a lot of people who are writing about the Grand Tour from that period are aware of, of these uh, problems and aware that they have to explain, you know, to their English readers um, the stakes, really, of, of what they're doing in, in religious terms. Um, so I go through some of that development, looking at, at Lassell's, uh, looking at Joseph Addison's, uh, you know, um, writings on the Grand Tour, and then some of the ways of, of relating to, you know, uh, thinking about travel and, and some of its religious stakes that are going on when Gibbon is writing. Um, I think the upshot of, of that history really is that um, is that the thinkers, uh, you know, who are writing about the Grand Tour in, in the period that I'm covering are very aware of kind of the religious significance of travel in a way that perhaps we aren't, you know, so that's an element of context that we can kind of re-inhabit, you know, the, the fear that maybe going to Rome uh, will, will, you know, that something about your soul might be at stake in that. 
Um, you know, so I think Gibbon is very much engaged with that when he writes about his own grand tour. Um, you know, and there's also this element of aesthetic formation that I, I don't know, might survive in some way in our conceptions of travel, but it certainly is prominent in 18th century conceptions of travel, that you go to the continent, and, you know, in order to see these great works of art, um, including many great works of art with religious themes, you know, and you have to develop the capacity to make judgments about them um, that are not primarily shaped by your own religious affiliations. Uh, you know, you, you, can, you can acknowledge the beauty of a painting of Mary, for instance, um, while still being a good Protestant. And, and acknowledge the beauty of, um, you know, pagan sculptures, or sculptures on pagan themes, right? Um, so that's another element that, that Gibbon is kind of alluding to, you know, the, the, the capacity, both the religious stakes of the Grand Tour, and the ability to kind of rise above it a bit, um, you know, in the ways we relate to things, even when they come from uh, parties or faiths that are different than our own. How about his, um, got quite a bit of detail about his grandfather and his father, and their religious upbringing as a, a sort of a route into Gibbon's own, you know, um, fraught relationship with religion, shall we say? Yeah. Um, can, yeah. Can you go into a bit of depth about that? About um, what that tells us about how that gets us into Gibbon being a more sensitive uh, student of religion. Yeah. Well, I, I think that probably the main thing to know is that you know he comes from a Protestant uh, family, um, but you know, a, a kind of. Um, a family that that is affiliated with the Jacobites in different ways, you know, is kind of traveling in those circles in any event. Um, and he, Gibbon, in telling the story of his own upbringing and his education, just portrays it as this it's kind of fragmented, you know, not very coherent, um, uh, you know, a set of experiences that, that really have no particular influence in shaping his soul, other than just leave him kind of astray, you know, at his own devices. Um, he has, you know, um, a fairly critical stance towards his own father's efforts uh, toward providing him uh, an education. And the upshot of all this is that he ends up at Oxford, um, you know, uh, as a very young man, uh, just a, you know, few, um, a little bit short, I guess, of his uh, 15th birthday, um, and then converts to Catholicism. So he has a very negative experience of Oxford. I'm sure it's, it's not the, you know, justified nowadays, but he's initially quite impressed by it, um, and then just finds himself at sea, and eventually converts to Catholicism as a kind of rejection of everything that he's experienced so far in his upbringing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the converting to Catholicism in, in the, you know, first half of the 18th century carries great consequences. Um, you know, the Catholics are still at great disadvantages um, in English society, prohibited in all sorts of ways. You know, sometimes those rules aren't enforced as drastically as they might be, but still, it's a major, major step. Um, and so, uh, so Gibbon converts to Catholicism, is quickly shipped off to Switzerland for it to be reconverted, uh, which, which he is. Uh, and on Christmas Day, 1754, he uh, rejoins uh, the, you know, the Protestant fold. Um, but anyway, he has an experience personally of these kind of conversion experiences, um, experience personally of a whole bunch of different uh, ways of relating to religion uh, that come from the, the kind of fragmentation of his family history. Interesting. Is that, so he goes through this sort of, so uh, um, personally, he's a teenager. I don't know if that's anachronistic to then, you know, apply that back but he's going through sort of emotional turmoil at Oxford at Oxford it sounds like he's converted he converts to Catholicism he's then sh uh, shipped off to Switzerland to be converted back to Protestantism he then and you then go on to sort of talk um, go through the, the autobiographies and how he um, detaches himself from religion and eventually ends up being sort of a secular observer religion by sort of by 1759 1761 right. um sort of but that's something he does to himself 
there's no one else involved in that process where he he um converts himself to skepticism um but he doesn't become a rigid critic he doesn't become like the aggressive anti-clerical anti-christian philosophe sort of figure why do you think that i mean this is perhaps a general question given this sort of gets to the root of what i think this book is about and sort of its message why do you think that doesn't happen why do you think he retains uh, or develops perhaps a better way of putting it develops an empathy empathy is the right word for the christian faiths that he has abandoned himself that's right um, well, I, I think it's a maybe several reasons, actually. I mean, one is just he seems to have developed the virtues through his education and through the different personal relationships he's had that allow him to have a certain kind of generosity you know, towards opinions that he doesn't hold. Um, so, I mean, that's probably the best place to start is it just seems, a, a, you know, an aspect of his intellectual character you know, that he has this, this virtue. But, I, you know, I think that the other thing you can say is that he has a way of relating, I think, to his own personal history where he doesn't feel... Um, that he has to simply reject, you know, elements of it. Like, I think he, you know, he has this experience, he wants to make sense of it. Um, even at the end of his life, he is still kind of working out exactly what it meant that he had all of these experiences of religion. Um, you know, and so he's, he relates to his own personal history, I think, with a certain kind of generosity. And then I guess the final thing to say is that the books and the people he encounters uh, sustain that kind of approach. You know, um, he has many uh, friends, you know, acquaintances, uh, people he takes very seriously who are serious um, Catholics. You know, when, when um, sometimes in the decline and fall, like for instance, in, in the second volume, when he's talking about Constantine's conversion, he will say, you know, that, that um, we should take seriously the possibility that this is not a matter of policy, not just instrumental, but actually it's a genuine conversion. And if we think about the fact that um, such great figures as Locke and Grotius, uh, Pascal, you know, Gibbon is very interested in Pascal from an early age, um, you know, took Christianity very seriously as a matter of personal faith, right? Um, that allows us also, right, as, as kind of skeptical observers of it, uh, not simply to dismiss or sneer at it. Well, that's what does stand out about Gibbon. I suppose just in my mind, I have this sense that um, many of our listeners might think that we're putting too much, I am maybe pushing you towards this, but putting too much, because you were a bit more circumspect about it or cautious about it at the beginning, um, but I am putting too much emphasis on Gibbon being this empathetic, serious, almost like a modern day cultural historian trying to get inside the minds of the people he is studying in the past and that may not tally quite you know easily with our sense of given as the as the ironical historian it is, i just want to quote something from towards the end of your book where I, this really struck me as a very sort of interesting message about, about given that he is willing to grant to early christians a share of earnestness credulity and self-discipline that is not credible by our own sort of standards. And part of the thing that Gibbon does so brilliantly, and what you sort of encourage, you're, you're encouraged to do as a historian, having read Gibbon, is to really sit your, situate yourself as much as possible in the minds of the people in the past and um, believe that they might have believed that what they were doing was true, yeah. was the right way to do it. And yeah. that sort of sets him apart. So I'm letting my own enthusiasm for the book and for Gibbon um, get in the way of me interviewing you. But the, um, that's what makes Gibbon so fascinating because he's unusual in this level of empathy and insight compared to David Hume, someone yes. he, David Hume's actress privilege that he engaged with. And yeah, he, Gibbon really um, 
uh, stands out. So, so if, if anyone wants to say in response to that, please do. Well, just I, that, that, oh. Robin, I, I agree, and I think that's very well put. Um, and I'll say it's not only with Christians, you know, it, it, it is, uh, yeah. where he's maybe had some personal experience that kind of opens up into empathy with them or anything like that. But also when he's talking about just like what it's like to be, you know, what he calls a barbarian, right? Like he, he also wants to enter into the minds of, 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 of you know, those like the Goths and this sort of thing. And, um, and, and take seriously, like that he has to extend his own emotional and empathetic range in order to have some sense of what they were doing. Um, so that's, I think, a really important thing to stress because it can come across from just reading the, the book. You know, it's there in the text. Um, but I think because Gibbon is engaged in what he calls philosophical history and, you know, does have the idea that there's a certain set of general causes that are kind of universal. And, and we, uh, you know, readers or historians in the 18th century can take in order to understand the, the big developments in history, even in, you know, pagan antiquity and all this. Um, it's possible to, to assume that he's kind of, you know, reducing everything or deflating it so that it fits inside of his system. And he understands himself to be doing something quite different. You know, that even though he wants to hold on to the idea that there are these general causes, he also wants to be quite alive to the fact that, you know, there are other people's experiences that extend beyond the range of what we know ourselves. Um, and also particular causes, you know, chance, uh, particular personalities, you know, battles that go this way, not that way, that matter uh, for history. It's interesting. So I think it might be useful to introduce here, so his Gibbon's first published work, mm -hmm. Essay Solitude de la, uh, de la Literature, 1761, where Gibbon is perhaps not quite yet the mature philosophical historian you've just described, or right. maybe he is. So um, could you go into a little bit of detail about how he's talking about writing about religion, analysing religion, uh, before he is the great historian of uh, the fall of Rome? Um, yeah, where was he at um, in 1761? Yeah, so this is his first book, um, the essay on the study of literature, which he publishes in French. Um, it is published in 1761. Um, it, it's fascinating to us, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, one, maybe, maybe two main reasons I can talk about. One is that he introduces a number of themes that then we see develop in his later work. And the second is that it's a very interesting um, kind of piece of evidence for his intellectual development uh, because we have two drafts of it and we can see a, a very important transformation in how he thinks about the world in between these two drafts, the one of 1759 and, and the one of 1761 that's published. Um, but just to say a, a word quickly about the, um, some of the main themes we see developed for the first time in the essay. Um, one is this notion of philosophical history that I've just alluded to. So, so Gibbon develops this idea that the highest form of history uh, that, that he wants to practice, uh, you know, philosophical history is distinct from, you could say, two extremes. One is the system, you know, the idea that there's a kind of like logical coherence to the events of the past that we can, uh, we can discern. And when we do, everything kind of fits into it. You know, there's a kind of totally coherent system. That's one extreme. The other extreme is just one thing after another, right? And no kind of rhyme or reason to it. You know, just these, these events happen, they're particular, what can you say? Um, you can describe them, but, you know, don't look for the, too much for the linking uh, tissues. Um, but Gibbon says there's, there's a space between there, which he calls philosophical history. He identifies as the, the great practitioners of this art, uh, people like Tacitus and Montesquieu, and he aspires, you know, to, to include himself in that group uh, too. The philosophical historian, he says, um, tries to discern general causes uh, that determine the big patterns in history. Um, the, the, the main pattern he's interested in is the rise and, and decline and fall of empires, right? So those are determined by general causes. But there, there are also particular causes that have something to do with the pace in which those general patterns show themselves. 
and um, you know, and the particular color they take, right? You know, like they get a particular personality, right? Matters in a way. But um, so so the the philosophical historian separates out those causes, identifies them, and talks a lot about probabilities. Uh, this is another notion that Gibbon has that you can't say as a historian for certainty that this must have happened at a certain time, but you are aware of the probabilities that the tendency is running in this direction, not in that direction. Uh, Gibbon at one point compares this to how like um, someone who knows a card game really well, how they observe a game of cards, right? So if you're watching a game of like a, you know, a poker or whatever, right? You can make judgments about how likely certain plays are to be successful and not because you know the rules and have observed games before. That's something like the kind of judgment that a historian makes. Um, so anyway, but that idea is worked out for the first time and with real clarity in the essay. Um, we also see him uh, developing a cyclical theory of history in the essay for the first time, and that's going to be very important uh, for the the explanations he gives us in the decline and fall. Um, the basic idea being that um, empires fall because they get uh, you know wealthy, uh, corrupt, soft, um, and eventually can't defend themselves, um, and they can't defend themselves in particular against poor, vigorous, hungry, you know, people who conquer them. Um, so, yeah. I, I um, trail that, so that'll sure. be a big theme later on. Yeah, yeah, of comparison course. Comparison to the early Romans and the early Christians. Yeah. So, listener, we'll come back to that in a second. Yeah, uh, yeah, so. yeah, definitely. Uh, but uh, just to say, that that idea gets worked out, uh, you know, clearly, I think, in the, for the first time in the essay, um, in Gibbon's work. Um, and, and not for the first time, though. It's a very old theory, as Gibbon is well aware. Uh, you know, he knows it from Herodotus, Pastus, and Polybius, and a bunch of others. Um, but he also works out a theory of religion, and that's uh, kind of the I guess, I uh, think that's interesting uh, for our purposes, where he depicts religion as driven, uh, you know, originally not only by fear, um, but by a set of other passions, we might think more elevated passions like wonder, awe, curiosity. Um, and he wants to give an account of religion, even in the essay, and I think this shows up in The Decline and Fall too, where although fear has a lot to do with it, you know, there's this kind of um, account that we find in Hobbes and other people where um, people are scared about the world around them, um, things are outside of their control, they would like to have control over them, so they posit these invisible causes, you know, that they can, uh, you know, uh, pray to in various ways to kind of control the things that might threaten them. Um, Gibbon wants to say that's part of it, you know, the fear has a lot to do with how people generate religious beliefs, but there's this other thing too, right, there's, there's wonder at the world around you, admiration, awe, um, and when we approach religion with a view to those, you know, higher passions, let's say, um, you can see how religion is very close, in fact, to philosophy, to our desire to know things, not only to control and prevent things from harming us, uh, but simply to know, you know, to, for the pleasure of knowing, uh, to try to kind of understand the world around us. Um, and so in the essay, Gibbon really shows the full range of his ways of accounting for religious belief as a non-believer, that's important to stress, right? He's not really entertaining the possibility that there's a genuine revelation, you know, that we have to respond to in one way or another. Um, but he is trying to give a kind of, um, you know, robust uh, account of, of what could drive someone to believe, uh, you know, in religion. Um, so that, that theme is worked out here. It develops later on. Um, that's all by way of talking about the ideas that are kind of worked out in the essay. I, I can speak a little bit, I guess, about the um, what it tells us about his intellectual development, uh, too, um, if you'd like. Yeah, which is... You know, um, we have these two drafts of the essay. Um, this is very interesting in, in Gibbon, all of Gibbon's works because in the decline and fall, we don't have drafts. Uh, we just have the final product. You know, we have a few different published versions of, um, you know, much of it, but not the drafts that went into it. In the case of the memoirs, we have just the drafts. We don't have the final product, right? So the essay is unique in that we have both the, the drafts um, and the final product. And so we can chart some of his intellectual development uh, by means of these. Um, and they're very uh, different in some interesting ways. In the 1759 essay, he 
you suggest that philosophical history is really the highest discipline that you can explain, you know, every other discipline in its proper place in accounting, you know, for the world with a view to philosophical history. But he holds out one important exception, which is he says that, um, you know, a historian would expect it to be the case that no new religion could be introduced in the time of Augustus. And he says, in fact, that Augustus tries to use religion as an instrument of policy to kind of refound Rome, you know, and fails uh, because of the, uh, the skepticism that's so prevalent among Roman elites and, you know, broadly in Roman society at the time. Um, so he says, with the tools of history, we cannot account for a new religion being founded at this time. But it is, and this is something we can't explain, right? So this is a marvelous passage, which really holds open some room for theology or religion, you know, being something that escapes the explanatory power of history. I was just interested there. Is he? Do you think he is doing that? This is possibly all just conjecture. Do you think he is doing that out of a desire to avoid controversy? It's not a, necessarily a time where it's interesting. He feels confident to publish what he publishes in seventy seventy six. He is not. Yeah, is he protecting himself or, or does he genuinely believe that? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, it's certainly possible um, that, that, you know, he's protecting himself. I guess the main reason I, I kind of shy away from that reading of this particular, in this particular case, although it's, you know, it's clearly something he's thinking about. It's very much something he's thinking about in publishing The Decline of Fall, too, you know, what the consequences could be for too overtly, you know, a skeptical a position. Um, but the reason I, I kind of shy away from that explanation of the essay is that he has this, this uh, very important experience in the latter part of 1759, after he's completed this draft, of, he calls it, and this is in the third draft of the autobiography, he calls it a, a regular trial of, uh, of the truth of Christianity, right? Which he makes with the help of Grotius. Uh, Grotius is, um, you know, a treatise on the, the truth of, of uh, the Christian religion. And Gibbon says, you know, he, he sits out with himself, he reads, engages with this book and really thinks through, does he believe or not? And he comes to the conclusion that no, he doesn't. Um, so that happens in the latter part of 1759, you know, he's in the, the Hampshire militia all during this time, he's doing other things, you know, reading books, but when he returns to the work in 1761, uh, it's because his father tells him basically that he would have a much better chance of getting a diplomatic position if he had a published work in French, <laughs> Gibbon says that's a good point, and he returns to this book and then uh, revises it and publishes it, he revises it very significantly, particularly in this passage that, has, that I just described to you having to do with whether history can account for the rise of Christianity, um, he scraps that. And he replaces it with a, a fairly elaborate analysis of polytheism, where he traces polytheism to, um, you know, to uh, our wonder at the world around us, um, our fear of the world around us too. Uh, he says that the polytheists, again, the pagan gods don't come from our admiration for human beings, but they come from our reaction to the natural world, um, and gives a kind of exhaustive account of it, which, which um, proves that uh, history, his kind of history, can account for polytheism, right? It, it, it's, it, it's capable of being explained rationally, in other words, right? Um, and suggests, and more than suggests, that Christianity can too. And that's kind of where he leaves the essay in 1761. Okay, so I think it's time we jumped into the decline or fall itself. Um, and you're interested in, in the book discussing, well, Gibbon's analyses of the different, the three major religions or three major paganisms at the time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about his contrasting treatments of uh, Roman paganism, Persian and German, and what he's interested in and the contrasts he draws uh, between the three? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we're in the decline and fall. So, uh, yeah. So I, I think the um, maybe a good place to start is just to talk a little bit about the shape of the decline and fall and then the role that these different chapters that you've mentioned um, play in it. So 
the decline and fall, as anyone who's, who's even glanced at it knows, is just a massive work. It's it's really really uh, big, uh, six volumes. You know, the the best edition of it, which is this one by David Wilmersley that came out in 1994, which is a wonderful edition, runs to about 3,500 pages. It's just there's a lot in there, um, and it, it's very extensive in what it covers. So it starts with you know with Augustus's founding of the empire um, at the beginning of it, runs into the 15th, even briefly into the 16th century. So it covers a lot. Um, and came out over a long stretch of time too. So volume one uh, came out in 1776, uh, the volume two and three in 1781, and then the remaining three volumes in 1788. So the, the part that, that I focus uh, most of my analysis on is, is the, uh, the first volume, which came out in 1776. Um, and that's the volume that more than anything else, I think is responsible for establishing Gibbon's reputation uh, for good and ill. Um, so that, that volume is set up as 16 chapters. Uh, it starts with three chapters kind of giving an overview of the, the regime of the Roman Empire as established by Augustus. Um, then has um, several chapters of narrative um, and then takes a two chapter excursion to study uh, Persian and Germany and then gets back into narrative and then ends with two chapters on Christianity at the very end of the first volume. And that's that's the shape of the thing as a whole. So the question that I pose myself about the, like the way it's laid out is, is, first of all, why does he save basically any discussion of Christianity for the very end of the book? Um, that's a really noticeable thing about it, you know, that he does his best to keep Christianity off stage, to kind of tell the story of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire until quite late, until Constantine, really, as if Christianity had nothing to do with it. Um, and I think that's a very important thing that we need to understand about it. Um, and I, you know, I have some ideas for how you can do that. But the other thing, the thing you asked about was how to think about these different polytheisms that Gibbon analyzes along the way. Um, so he starts in this first uh, three chapter section on the Roman regime by giving us what appears to be a very sympathetic, um, a very admiring account of Roman polytheism as being a, 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 you know, a religion that's oriented towards toleration, um, in which religion can be used for political ends in a very good way, uh, because the, the priests are magistrates and the magistrates are priests, you know, the, there's no divide in, in the uh, kind of ruling classes of the religion and the ruling classes in politics. Um, you know, and so he praises this for, for, uh, for many reasons, uh, Gibbon does, or it seems to at the beginning. Um, we then get our next serious analysis of religious uh, beliefs in these chapters on Germany and Persia. Um, and this is a very interesting section because you know it's, it's at a low point in uh, Roman political history. Gibbon says, "I'm going to take a break now and take a little, uh, you know, a little pause, and we'll go think about Persia and Germany for a second, then we'll come back to all this misery that's going on in Rome." And so he takes us, you know, on this study abroad trip, uh, so to speak, uh, and and introduces us to you know two very different systems of government. And there's lots to be said about them, but the really interesting thing about these chapters is he shows us priestly religions. So religions in which there is not the same overlap between magistrates and priests that there is in Rome. And he teaches us how to think about how that way of dividing politics from religion opens up possibilities for politics um, that are not so evident in the, uh, in the Roman polytheist system. Um, and probably the, the most striking case of this is in Persia where you know, he, he portrays this renewal of the Persian regime that has a lot to do with with kind of um, you know the, the the priests who have developed their their own capacities to rule and influence people independent of politics, all of a sudden introducing those those skills you know into politics and really transforming it, um, and persecuting other religious sects. In fact, much more successfully than the Roman elites managed to persecute religious sects in the Roman Empire, um, on Gibbon's telling. Um, we would expect that to be condemned by Gibbon, you know, that he's against religious persecution generally, um, and it you know it doesn't part. 
But what's really striking is in these chapters, he's alive to the possibilities that open up um, through the fact of priests being separate from political power and is capable even of acknowledging that they have salutary political effects under certain conditions. Um, so it's really after we've gotten that training though and how to think about you know, um, the, the influence of kind of priestly religion on politics that then later in the book in the concluding chapters, Gibbon can talk to us about how Christianity arose and spread. You say something about the, um, the Germans as well. The way I read you, and I correct me if I'm wrong, is that Gibbon is silently contradicting Tacitus there. He's silently undoing the sort of the celebration of you know, German military vigor and uh, yeah. piety um, and is arguing for something quite, quite different. Could you uh, just, yeah, um, tell us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so Tacitus is is Gibbon's great hero. He's a good hero to have, right? Who can blame Gibbon for admiring Tacitus as much as he does? Um, and because Tacitus wrote, you know, a treatise on the Germans um, that Gibbon uses for much of his information in this chapter on Germany, um, it's tempting to think that he's just following in, in the wake of this historian he admires. You know, maybe updating a little bit along the edges, but fundamentally not doing anything different. Um, but in fact, you know, when, when you read this somewhat attentively, uh, you see that he's, he's challenging many claims that Tacitus makes about the Germans. So, you know, Tacitus looks at the Germans as a kind of um, throwback in many ways to the early Roman Republic, that there are many virtues, you know, this, this kind of vigor, you know, toughness that we can admire. You can see in the Germans now out on the frontier of the empire um, that we've lost, you know, we Romans of, of the, the empire. Um, and Gibbon wants to challenge, I think, that basic kind of evaluation of the Germans. And he says that- yeah, That's stupid that, and lazy. <laughs> that's right, stupid and lazy, yeah. Uh, he talks about the, at one point, the religious system of the Germans, if, uh, if savages can be said to have, you know, stuff like that. He's, he's very uh, disparaging of, of the Germans. Um, and, you know, I think for for one, like maybe two, like two reasons that we can maybe talk about. Um, one is that I think Gibbon thinks that the the range of the human mind is wider than, um, than Tacitus acknowledges um, in this sense, that Gibbon suggests that the Germans are illiterate, basically. He thinks there's good reasons to assume they're illiterate. Uh, we shouldn't make too much of these runes, you know, that Tacitus alludes to. Um, and he thinks they're basically uh, enumerate in the sense of not having, you know, money, basically. He thinks it's a barter economy. And for Gibbon, he thinks that, uh, that a people who does not have uh, you know, literacy letters and that sort of thing, um, and does not use money, can't have really developed its mental faculties in a way um, that Tacitus seems to assume that the Germans have. Um, so that's an interesting, like, uh, departure on the grounds of, like, psychology and how to think about certain you know, institutions that develop over historical time might interact with human psychology. The second way though, that I think Gibbon uh, differs from Tacitus pretty significantly is he puts much more emphasis on the independent authority of German priests than Tacitus does. Um, and this is really, I think, the, the, the key thrust of, of his, um, say, critique of, of his great master, you know, is that I think he, Gibbon, thinks that he has understood priestly religion and the effect that this can have on politics far better than Tacitus uh, does. Um, you know, partly because of the historical, you know, experience that Gibbon has in, in view with the development of Christianity and trying to understand, you know, how Christian priests function. Um, but, but in any event, that, that ends up being a significant innovation on his master, you know, so he wants to kind of, in a Tacitian mode, try to understand what's new about uh, religion and politics when priests are, are uh, very much involved. It's interesting. So at one point you described the Gibbon as holding the vigor and power 
of the Persian and German peoples comes from their priestly religions. And this is contrasted with what the less pious, more political uh, Roman religion, but also the spread of academic skepticism. Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's a sense that by the time Christianity turns up, Roman religion has become a bit complacent. It's a, it's lost, it weighs very lightly on the shoulders correct me if I'm getting this wrong, very lightly on the shoulders of, of Romans. Um, it feels very much in my head, it's David Hume's natural history of religion is sort of in, in, in the background of Gibbon's mind here. Um, but that, that, yeah, there's something kind of rather a bit weak about uh, the state of Roman religion, you know, at the time of uh, early Christianity. I was interested in, so could you tell us a little bit about that uh, in a moment, but also the sense that contributing to the weakening of um, religion in Rome is the spread of sceptical philosophy. Correct. Yeah. And um, yeah, what, what that's doing, and that feels like an ironic statement on the part of yeah. Gibbon. So can, yeah, yeah. can you no, develop I those two? It's a deeply ironic statement, that's right. Um, yeah, so I mean, one thing to note is just that he absolutely does say that, right? I mean, he says that the, you know, he starts by praising the Roman magistrates in a way for, he calls them atheists under sacerdotal robes, right? So they, they don't really believe any of this, but they kind of carry on the trappings of it and they recognize the political utility of religion. Um, but he notices, Gibbon does, that the political utility of religion depends on some people taking it seriously. Um, and he observes, he observes that that's in increasingly not so in Rome that, you know, what, what seems like it could just be kind of trapped in the elite castes, in fact, it's not, and seeps out throughout Roman society and makes the religion a lot less politically useful than it used to be when people really believed in it. Um, so, yeah, so he has that sense that that's a danger, I guess, and that that can kind of, um, I mean, you were saying like sap, you know, people's uh, belief in it, make, you know, the, the them as a whole, you know, less uh, resolute, you know, less, less, you know, less willing, I guess, to use religious motivations as a way to motivate participation in political life and, you know, other like hard things that they could do. Interesting. So the, the skeptical Roman elites are unable to counter like the piety and the dogmatism and <laughs> the sheer bloody mindedness of early yeah, Christians. That's right. But they're not. They're not in a position to defend against what's uh, coming at them. Can we? So can we um, move into? I'm conscious of the time. Um, trying to bring some of this stuff together to compare. You know the state of Roman religion at the time of Christianity's emergence. Uh, you know why that is a conflict that, have, that the Christians eventually win, according to Gibbon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So let me maybe just um, return just for a second, Robin, to say that, sure. you know, on that last point that Gibbon takes it so far at some points in the decline of falls to say that, you know, that basically the, the temples had been abandoned. And that's how we should understand them, you know, that something was going to replace paganism because it had basically decayed, you know, and it just ended up being uh, Christianity. So that's, that's, you know, taking it quite far indeed. And as you were saying, there's an irony to that, because Gibbon, you know, in his own historical time is face to face with, uh, you know, uh, deep skeptics, right, who are, who are uh, publishing their skepticism, right, and he, and, you know, he's very critical of them, in fact, uh, figures like Voltaire, uh, for, um, you know, for, for imbibing a little bit of the kind of zealotry, I guess, of, you know, of, of, of their enemies, um, and, and not thinking about maybe the consequences of, of you know, the, the public kind of, you know, questioning of, of, um, of religious faith with what they're doing. Um, yeah. 
would he? So this is, I don't think this is how Gibbon would describe it, but um, could you frame that in terms of religion isn't going to go away if That's you right. undermine uh, your current religious institutions, you will not win. Some new ones will turn up. Some new religion will turn up in the place of. And it does again. I have Hume's Natural History of Religion in my head, where polytheism gets um, weakened and um, doesn't satisfy people psychologically. But then a new theism will turn up, and then that will take control because it can um, assuage the fears and hopes of of the populace. Is that? Is that the same sort of argument as Gibbon, uh, yeah. Gibbon's making? As I understand him, I think that's that's uh, Gibbon is very much in sympathy with that idea. You know, the, the, it's not a question of eradicating religious belief entirely or anything like that. That's you know, that's unrealistic, um, even if it were desirable, right? It, it's not something we could achieve. And so the question then is how you should relate to religious belief, both as a personal matter and a political matter. And I think Gibbon there has um, you know a, a kind of a way of doing this that he wants to model in his own intellectual life and wants to kind of allow you know his readers to enter into uh, through the the, the, the things he, he writes, which are quite different, you know, this is one of the main arguments of the book, quite different in tone than the kind of extreme, you know, more aggressive anti-clerical writings of people like Voltaire. So can we, I've got to let my own enthusiasm and interest not take over. Um, can we go back to this in the contrast between the early virtuous Roman Republic and the early pious Christian Republic? Yeah. Well, what's, so this what's Gibbons, like, um, what's he doing there? Yeah, so when he gets into these chapters at the end of volume one, uh, the 15th and 16th chapters, um, he, he asks, you know, why did Christianity spread so rapidly? And, you know, what are we to make of the rise of Christianity? And he gives this, this famous account that gets him into a lot of hot water very quickly, where he says, we need to attend to the secondary causes of the spread of Christianity. The primary cause being God's providence, but given, you know, gives that barely a sentence and very quickly gets into the secondary or secular causes, which, you know, we seem to suggest are the main ones we should attend to. Um, and, he, you know, he gives five of these. He says, that, you know, we should think about the Christians' intolerant zeal, their promise of a future life, um, their, you know, the way they use ostensible miracles uh, to win conversation their austere morality, and lastly, the union and discipline of the Christian Republic. Um, and, you know, there's lots to be said about all of them, but I think the most interesting with the view to Gibbon's cyclical theory of history is this bit about the union and discipline of the Christian Republic. Now, that might have a tinge of irony to it. I mean, the idea of calling Christianity a republic, you know, a Christian calls lots of things republics that are not republics, and he uses that term ironically sometimes, right? Um, but in this case, I think there's, there's a good deal of earnestness there, too, because he means to capture the way that um, that on the spiritual plane, people who really believe, you know, what they're saying, take it very seriously, actually live by it, you know, relate to one another through those beliefs. So they have a kind of discipline, a kind of order, a kind of urge to defend, you know, their society against the surrounding society. Um, that this people, you know, organized and motivated in this way can punch way above their weight. You know, can can have a disproportionate effect on, um, on on history, and I think that's in fact what he sees happening is that he suggests to us that these early Christians are to the decadent, you know, polytheistic system that surrounds them, kind of like the early Romans were with respect to these decadent, you know, Eastern empires um, that they conquered as Rome expanded um, early in its history. Um, is there some irony there? Sure, you know, because these, these Christians aren't necessarily fighting for worldly goods, you know, as Gibbon understands them, but there's some earnestness too, right? They, they believe in something, are willing to sacrifice for it um, in a way that their, you know, their peers, uh, polytheists, are not, and that has something to do with their success. Brilliant. 
Um, just one eye on the time. I think we probably should. Is there anything else you want to like to say about that fourth chapter before we, uh, as in the fourth chapter of your book, not of the final four, before we jump? over to your final chapter and Gibbon's general observations found at the end of volume three. If not, can you please tell us about how the establishment of Christianity changed European history and how the um, Europe is different, what is um, you know, the role of Christianity as a hegemonic culture, what, how that changes, uh, changes the scene? Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe just one little foot uh, endnote, I guess, on that last thing, though. So, you know, so we've applied the idea of cyclical history to the rise of Christianity, which I think is a fascinating part of, of the book. Um, he, given also, you know, my reading of this is actually very reluctant to blame Christianity for the decline and fall of Rome. And that's maybe worth uh, saying. Um, and not all Gibbon scholars are, you know, of one mind on that. But um, I think that is an important element of his um, of his book because you know he he manages to tell the story of the decline of fall quite far into its uh, you know to, to, to the process without invoking Christianity in any way. He also has a cyclical theory where empires are quite capable on their own power of declining and falling. In fact that's kind of the natural course of things without having to resort to a new religion to account for why that happens. Um, so all of that by way of just coda you know in our last conversation about the uh, first volume. Um, in terms of the the effect on history though um, yeah, so in the, towards the end of my book, I look at this little text that Gibbon wrote. It's called The General Observations on the Fall of the Roman Empire in the West. Um, it's a short text that he wrote before working on the, 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 the whole of the decline and fall. He wrote it probably sometime in 1773, 1774, um, we think, and then decided to insert it at the end of volume three. So, so volumes two and three come out in 1781. So Gibbon put it at the end of that. And he basically asks himself in this in this little text, um, like, what should we, we, we in the 18th century, right, we in 1781, what should we learn from this whole story, you know, that I've just told? Um, and there are lots of things you might expect him to say, right? You might expect him to say, we learned that every political body is going to decline and fall eventually. This is a kind of inevitable process of history, that sort of thing. Um, or maybe another, you know, a few other conclusions you might expect. Instead, he says, quite surprisingly, that one thing we learn is to appreciate the current arrangement of European politics and to recognize that it's not going to be uh, vulnerable to decline and fall in the same way that the Roman Empire was. Um, that's a very startling claim, right? There are a bunch of reasons uh, that he gives for that. Um, the most interesting, in my view, in terms of thinking about given on Christianity, is that he says that the Roman system, uh, sorry, that the European system in the, um, you know, that, that, that he grows up with, that's in evidence in, seven, in the 1780s, is remarkable for having a more or less shared culture across nations. He says there's a similarity in manners and in kind of culture and religion to some degree too, um, but there's, there's real political division at the same time. And he says that condition of having a shared kind of universal, uh, you know, more or less culture and political division is very favorable for the liberty of mankind and, and just kind of good in general. His idea there is that even if individual states kind of uh, are governed by these general causes that he explains at great length in his book, you know, they decline, fall, that sort of thing. Um, the diversica diversification of um, states ensures that the whole enterprise won't decline and fall. He also thinks that the, the political division ensures the conditions for a kind of, you know, strategic, military, uh, national rivalry uh, that can be very conducive for um, preventing this kind of corruption and softness that, you know, he's worried about that he identifies with decline. 
And then they, uh, the, um, the last piece I think that you might say is that it also fosters a kind of, um, you know, technological competition uh, proliferates the number of people who are involved in, you know, ruling states and, the, you know, make sure that the political elites, uh, there are going to be many of them, you know, competing and so on. But all these, in all these ways, political division has these kind of salutary effects from the perspective of, is this whole thing going to fall apart? At the same time, there's this kind of shared culture overarching the whole thing that Gibbon thinks is also very good. And this is the culture, in fact, that he, you know, participates in as a member of the Republic of Letters, as someone who's writing for a wide European audience um, and wants to be, you know, read by people regardless of, of kind of whatever nation um, they, they happen to belong to. Um, so that's a really interesting and kind of paradoxical surprising conclusion, you know, that there's something about the European system that we learn to um, to, to value um, by reflecting on the way that the Roman Empire as a whole declined and fell. Fantastic. Is there anything that we should have talked about that we haven't done? Um, I appreciate you. <laughs> We've jumped across a lot of rather large topics. Um, yeah, have we? Is there anything that you would like to mention that you haven't done? Well, Robin, I've probably given lots of evidence. So, you know, I could talk for hours and hours <laughs> about any element of this. Uh, so I want to be respectful of, uh, you know, your and everyone's attention. Um, well, but uh, no, nothing salient that's coming to mind right now. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, are you going to stay in the 18th century or are you going to go back to, in terms of future future research? Is this, a, are you one of us now or are you going back to foreign <laughs> policy things? I don't know how anyone can really leave the 18th century once they've lived there for a little <laughs> while intellectually. Um, yeah, so I, I don't plan to leave entirely. I mean, I, I don't know precisely what's next. I'm working on a few essays to kind of experiment with some different paths. Um, I will say, apropos of what you know, we were talking about just a second ago with Gibbon and the Hampshire militia, <laughs> that uh, you know, partly because of studying Gibbon's experiences there and 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 just thinking about the Praetorians, you know, which are a big theme, especially in volume one. Um, and because of my institutional home, you know, I'm a civilian professor at West Point. Um, I have been thinking a lot about civil military relations, you know, basically how, how states can have a strong military that's not so strong or, you know, warped in its inclinations that it threatens, uh, you know, domestic uh, stability in the regime at home. I've written a bunch of essays on that and um, I'm interested in exploring that a bit more. Um, I'm also really, I've become really interested in the ways that Gibbon and Plutarch too, for that matter, kind of interweave um, autobiography and you know, reflection on their own personal experiences and the kinds of philosophical questions that they, um, they're interested in answering for themselves. Um, so I've started doing a little bit of work in that vein too. I have an essay out in this, this magazine called The Point that reflects a bit on my experiences as a civilian at West Point. Um, and I plan to do a little bit more of that sort of writing in the future too, but not leaving the 18th century behind by, by any stretch. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Hugh Liebert, and uh, goodbye. Thank you, Robin. Take care.